bodies are in the news again. Um, The ongoing argument about abortion is largely about what one can and cannot do with their body and the extent to which that decision harms or destroys someone else's body. We know the slogan, my body, my choice. And that same slogan is being picked up in the vaccination controversies. Again, the matter is how much authority the state has over one's body, whether or not it can compel vaccination. And the transgender debates, too, are almost exclusively about bodies, the extent to which one's body determines their identity and how wise it is to change it. So much of our current cultural turmoil could be boiled down to different answers on essential questions about the body. What is it? What is our relationship to it? And does it determine identity? Now, regardless one's answer, the common cultural denominator is that one's body is their own. But Christianity enters our cultural debates like a bull in a china shop. It tosses aside our self-ownership, my body is my own, and tells us quite a different story. My, or rather, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, Christianity, among all religions, places a unique emphasis on the body. At its heart, without which it would cease to be, is the bodily incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And moreover, it maintains that the future resurrection of every human person, the just and the unjust, will happen. Other religions want to escape the body and this material world. Christianity keeps us firmly situated within it. Now, our views about identity seem to be at odds with this. When we think about who we are, are rather, our bodies rarely enter the picture. We associate ourselves with our feelings, our thoughts, and all the inner workings, but not so much our bodies. And that's why, you know, changing gender even makes sense to the modern mind. Because the body is not who you are, you are on the inside. You are what you feel, etc., etc., But Christianity takes quite a different approach. Our bodies, it says, have been united to Christ. We are, quite literally, His body. And that's our concern this morning. We are talking about our union with Christ and how it transforms our entire person. We considered more inward matters last week, the soul. And this week we're talking about more outward matters the body. It too is united to Christ. 
And the right place to do that, to start this conversation about our bodily union with Christ, is Holy Communion. It is a rite, or ritual, if that's not too strong a word, instituted by Christ that is very much concerned with our bodies. In his final hours, Christ does not give us a mental picture or a doctrinal formulation, but a meal. The meaning of his death is summed up in eating and drinking. Take, eat, he says, this is my body, and drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood. So, we're going to get a running start at this. First, considering our bodily union with Christ in our reading this morning, 1 Corinthians 6, um, and then consider communion's role in this whole matter, and then how, lastly, it shapes our moral lives. Okay, so 1 Corinthians, more than any other writing in the Scriptures, is concerned with the body. It appears that the Corinthians were the super-spiritual type meaning that what matters is on the inside and that the outside is insignificant. Conveniently, this gave them license, the justification, to do whatever they pleased with the outside, their bodies. It seems that the Apostle Paul, in engaging with them, is quoting back to them their slogans and countering them with his own answers. So the Corinthians say, all things are lawful for me justifying their behavior, making it okay to do whatever they please. All things are lawful for me, but the Apostle Paul responds, not all things are profitable. Food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food, but God will do away with both of them, said the Corinthians. Yet the body is not for immorality, but the Lord, and the Lord is for the body, answered Paul. So he's countering their faulty theology. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. The body, it doesn't matter what one does with it. He says the body's for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. So their theology is quite clear. The body, said the Corinthians, or believed the Corinthians, is going to be destroyed in the end. So all that happens in the body is temporal. It's bound to this life. So it doesn't matter what one does with it. It doesn't matter how one uses their body. Again, the only thing that matters is the spiritual core. And if you take care of that element, you can do what you'd like with the rest. So food, drink, sex, these are for the body and the body is for them. So get on with it, the Corinthians said. And they did. The particular issue in our passage is sex with temple prostitutes. They did whatever they wanted with their bodies. So what does Paul do? Well, he counters their anti-body theology with his pro-body theology. He does not give them commands, things to do and to stop doing. Instead, he addresses their understanding and their sense of identity. Their behavior is wrong, certainly, but the real problem is further upstream. The Corinthians are ignorant. They do not know the truth about their bodies. Hence, 1 Corinthians 6, 14, 
Now God has not only raised up the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. So contrary to the most basic tenet of their system, Paul maintains that the body will not be destroyed forever. It will be raised up on the last day, and therefore, it matters. It is not a temporary husk that we need only in this life, that we can use however we please because it will be discarded in the end, cast off and no longer relevant. Rather, it will be ours into eternity, resurrected and made new. So it's not merely the inside that matters for our conduct. It's also the outside. Because these bodies of ours will always be ours. So what is done in the body, what is done with the body, counts. Put simply, God is concerned with the body. He cares what we do with our bodies because He made them. And He will remake them in the last day. And that's the first thing to note. Your body, in all its ache and awkwardness, matters to God. He has a plan for it. The same plan as Jesus' body, resurrection and glorification. Now, I made mention earlier that our cultural debates revolve around the body. Right? We have these body problems, body image, gender dysphoria, body dysmorphic disorder, and so on, just to name a few. Now, I don't want to be oversimplistic, but we cannot move beyond these until we realize that the destiny of the body is resurrection. It's not optional. It's not something that is secondary to who we are. Rather, it's something sacred. It has a future in the new heavens and the new earth. And though it causes us pain, physically and relationally, it must be seen as something fundamentally good. And that understanding can begin to clear the way for a more truthful relationship to our bodies, a genuine reconciliation with them. The resurrection of our bodies changes the way we relate to them, the way we view them. But... The body's resurrection comes because it is united to Christ in the present. Our bodies have a future because Christ's body has a future. Now, verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Our bodies are our one absolute possession. My body is my own. And while that is true and good, right? we don't want to say that our bodies aren't our own, that they're public possession or whatever, that will lead us into some bad territory. While that is true and good, there is another more fundamental owner, and that is Christ. Your bodies, the apostle says, are members of Christ. Our bodies are his body, and his body is our body. It's no longer ours to use however we please. 
It is now accountable to a higher end than merely our own desires. Eating and drinking and sexual gratification or whatever. It is Christ's body and it must be kept. It must be used. It must be employed in a manner that is consistent with its true identity. And that's why we call the church the body of Christ. It's not simply a neat metaphor, but reality. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 30 through 32. We are members of his body. For this reason, quoting Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So as husband and wife become one flesh in marriage, so also Christ and his church. We are Christ's body and our bodies are Christ. This is a great mystery. The analogy of human marriage in all of its nearness and intimacy does not get us the entire way. In some still deeper way, these bodies of ours are joined to Christ and he cherishes them as his own because they are his own. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So despite our own ambivalence or even contempt for our bodies, there is a current that runs deeper. Our bodies belong to Christ. He bought them with his own blood. We can no longer look at our bodies the same way. When I look in the mirror, regardless of what I see, regardless of how I feel about my body, in truth, what I behold is something that Christ wants, something that he died for. And therefore, this body of mine is accountable to him. I must use it and treat it in such a way that's pleasing to him in righteousness and in holiness. Hence, to illicit sex with prostitutes, Paul says, may it never be. It's not that we're breaking rules and transgressing boundaries, but more profoundly, that we do not know who we are and whose we are. We are still thinking of ourselves as autonomous individuals and our bodies as our own. And that's the root from which everything grows, our ignorance. Twice in this passage, the Apostle Paul asks us, or do you not know? Do you not know? In simple terms, we are forgetful prone to losing track of who we are in Christ. In one sense, that's not a problem, one among many, but the problem. Before one sins, one forgets. Psalm 78 is a poetic retelling of Israel's history, and a rather negative one. It recounts their unbelief and repeated unfaithfulness, and it attributes all of it to a more fundamental failure of memory, to forgetfulness. Psalm 78 
now verses 10 and 11. They did not keep the covenant of God and refused to walk in his ways. They forgot his deeds and his miracles that he had shown them. They forgot. And, verses 42 through 43, they did not remember his power. The day when he redeemed them from the adversary when he performed his signs in Egypt. The only reason Israel was not consumed in its forgetfulness was that God remembered them. Verses 38 and 39, But he, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Often he restrained his anger and did not arouse all his wrath. Thus he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. So when our hearts wander from those central truths about God and Christ and who we are in Him, then things go poorly for us. When we forget, then things go poorly for us. Forgetting that we are in Christ, that we are not our own, that our bodies belong to Him, we begin to actually live like it. Our lives take on a fundamentally different character, headed down a fundamentally different road because we forgot. So as it turns out, the simple act of remembrance plays quite a large part in our lives. So let's turn there now. Let's turn our attention to that subject. Human memory is not the same as computer memory, right? Mere data storage. Remembrance, in other words, is not the mental ability to recall certain facts stored away in our brains. It is, rather, what makes those facts useful to us in the present and future. So I might have a faint memory um, of, of touching, grabbing an electric fence, and I do, But what good is that memory if it doesn't keep me from doing it again? All right, remembrance teaches, it informs. It's not about the past, really, it's about the present, it's about the future. I learn from my remembrance and develop on the job experience, as it were. And now, look how wise I am, I don't touch electric fences. That's why something like PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome, can be so debilitating. It's when someone cannot recover or move on from a past traumatic event. It's stamped onto their memory, resting just beneath the surface. And the smallest trigger, a sight, a smell, a sound, can bring that past trauma to the present with devastating effects. So rather than learning and developing from remembrance, progressing and advancing because of their experience, they're hindered by it. They're brought down by it. They're affected in every moment by it. I remember in middle school sitting on the steps um, during lunch with my friends when I did, as middle schoolers do, and popped open a, a bag of chips And it was quite loud, and the boom echoed throughout the courtyard, and our security guard jumped. And when he gathered himself, he came to us and 
looked us right in the face and very politely asked that we never do that again. Now, he didn't tell us why, but we knew he was a veteran sporting his veteran of Vietnam hat, and it brought back memories of war. Now, PTSD can be like that. It can be an isolated instance, but it's more often an everyday affair. The past traumatic memory just hangs around, making its presence felt in most everything that someone does. Now, I bring this up to say that all memory is like that. It might not be as traumatic. It might not be stamped onto our mind with that much force, yet all memory has a similar effect. And as it pertains to our Christianity, that's where things become difficult. Why? Well, because we're being asked to remember events that we were not present for, namely the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, we're called to remember God's past faithfulness in our lives, right? I'm to remember what God did for me in X, Y, and Z situation. And based on that remembrance, I'm to act faithfully in the present. I know God will not let me down because He hasn't let me down in the past, right? So I learned from that remembrance, but that's not the primary remembrance of the Christian life. The primary remembrance is that of my death, and resurrection with Christ in the cross and the empty tomb. That's the event that I'm always to go back to, that I'm always to catch my bearings from. Here's the thing. I wasn't there. So I cannot plumb the depths of my memory and call to mind the sights and sounds and smells of those days. I didn't see Jesus crucified like Peter and John and James and the rest of the apostles did. It's not stamped onto my memory like my sin is. Now, I was there for those things. I remember them. How could I forget them? So one remembrance comes easy, the unrighteous past. And of course, the enemy never wants us to forget that. And the other, the true past... Who we are in Christ comes through much struggle. And the tone of our lives, established by simple fact, is that is set rather by which one we remember more. Whose memory do we inhabit? Our own or Christ's? There's a psychiatrist, uh, Bessel or Bessel van der Kolk. In his book, The Body Keeps Score, he explains why most PTSD therapy does not work. Now, he had a lot of firsthand experience. Um, He dealt with primarily military veterans, and he did so for about 30 years. He says the reason that this kind of therapy doesn't work is because it treats only the mind. And he found that his prescribed treatment fairly standard things like journaling, support groups, and medication, not only did not help, but made the problem worse. By constantly bringing those memories to the surface, it brought up these terrible reactions. He eventually came to the conclusion, after so much trial and error, so much study and and, um, 
and uh, brain science that the problem was not only in the mind, but also in the body. The problem is that the body also remembers the past traumas. He says this, For real change to take place, the body needs to learn that the danger has passed and to live in the reality of the present. So due to trauma, a soldier in battle, a victim of abuse, the body gets stuck in the hyperactive flight or fight state. Right, that gear, it shift, the body shifted into that gear and it can't get out. The alarm is always on. The volume is up always at 10. And, and so every interaction, everything is always loaded with, with, with these memories and this past experience. And so no matter how convinced the mind is, there is no substantial progress till the body learns the same thing. So in our struggle with memory, that's the key. We cannot engage our minds alone. So I can say to my mind again and again and again that I have died and risen with Christ, but it's not going to do much if my body hasn't learned that truth, if my body's still in the gear of my sinful past, stuck in that gear and can't get out. My body has to learn. It has to relearn its memories, not its own, but those of Christ. And that's where the Lord's Supper comes in. Do this, Christ tells us, in remembrance of me. How interesting. We are called to remember events that we were never at. Not by performing a mental exercise or reciting doctrinal formulations, but by rather sharing a meal. We remember by doing something with our bodies, in other words. Each time we take communion, we are reenacting that night in the upper room. We put ourselves there with the disciples. And we read the very same words that Jesus said to them. We are inhabiting a memory we never had, going back to a time and place we never were. But simply in communion, we are retraining our memories, implanting new memories through partaking of the bread and the cup. And while that might sound strange, and I'm fairly certain it does, it's a very, very common thing. We do it almost every holiday. Now, on Thanksgiving, we don't simply remember the first Thanksgiving meal. Right? We don't open up our textbooks and say, look, this is what the pilgrims and the Native Americans did on you know, such and such back then. No, we don't do that. We reenact it. Right? We kill a turkey and set a table and grab everyone together and have a great old time. And that's what Thanksgiving is. We're reenacting, remembering that event. We do the same thing with the 4th of July. We reenact our battle for independence, the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air with fireworks. We go back, so to speak, to those events. Peter Lightheart here, he, he gets to the point. He says, these social memories help bind together the members of a group, reinforcing their sense of a shared past and present, and pointing them toward a shared future. Past events are not only remembered, but mentally reenacted. 
and holidays and celebrations so that people who were not alive at the time of the remembered events get a feeling of belonging. So by reenacting these events, I get a sense of my identity as an American. Right? I was not there, but nevertheless, there is a form of participation that I have in those events. Now, quite naturally, the scriptures are, are just full of these things. All the feasts that God has prescribed revolve around this theme. God commanded that Israel observe the Passover as a perpetual feast to reenact the events of the Exodus through a meal. Now, if you've ever been to a Seder dinner, and I know many of you have, you know how deliberate each element is. Right? The bitter herbs remind them of slavery. They even square apples and walnuts, which are designed to resemble the bricks that they had to stack under Pharaoh's regime. Now, another element of the Seder mill is the Haggadah, or the telling. Someone, particularly the patriarch of the family, would retell the Exodus story, usually by reading this passage from Deuteronomy. My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there. Few in number, but there he became a great, mighty, and populous nation. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us, and imposed hard labor on us. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and he heard our voice and saw our affliction and our turmoil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror and with signs and wonders. And he has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So the telling was not read as something that happened Apart from the present generation, rather, notice personal pronouns are used. My, us, we. It's a way, again, of making the past present, of inhabiting events gone by that are trapped now in time. A current Jewish scholar, John Levinson, teaches people to um, view the Seder dinner this way. What your ancestors saw, he says, is what you saw. God's rescue of them implicates you, obliges you. For you, by hearing this story and responding to it affirmatively, become Israel. And it was Israel whom he rescued. Now, God commands other rites too. Uh, one is Sukkoth, the Feast of Booths, in which Israel remembers its wilderness wanderings. You might think reading the story or recalling uh, uh, the events might be enough, but it's not. Sukkoth is remembered by living in huts or tents for seven days, right? Essentially, part of their worship to God is camping. That would be cool. Um, he says, Leviticus 23, 42, and 43, You shall live in booths for seven days so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in Egypt in booths. And when I brought them out of the land of Egypt... And when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. So in other words, to know is not simply a mental act. It's a bodily act. I can only know the experience of past generations by reenacting their experience. That way the memory is not only implanted in my mind, but my body as well. 
So as we noted, Holy Communion is all about this very thing, remembering with our bodies. It's a pathway to knowing, not simply by words and concepts bouncing around our minds, but embodied experience. We go back to the upper room, as it were, and relive these events every time we partake. We do not overhear the words, this is my body given for you as spectators. We hear them as participants. Jesus speaks to us. So little by little, we come to inhabit a new past, retaining our, uh, retraining rather, our bodies. And so we become new people. In communion, our identity is given to us. Finding ourselves is not a matter of looking within, searching for some untouched core that makes us who we are. It is rather a matter of looking outside ourselves, taking a public event and making it private, taking what is outside and bringing it inside. And what is this identity given to us in communion? Well, nothing less than Christ, the eternal Son of God, the Word through whom which all things were created, gave His body and His blood for us, to us. But communion is more than remembrance. It's also about participation. We remember those past events, but Christ is present to us spiritually in them as well. In 1 Corinthians 10, the apostle weaves a rather complex argument that revolves around this idea of participation. He does not want the Corinthians hanging around the pagan temples and eating the food sacrificed there because he says, I do not want you to become sharers in demons. It was not as harmless as they thought. But rather, by participating, they were literally communing with demons, sharing with them. But that was not the main issue. It was rather that they communed with Christ in communion and demons in the temple sacrifices. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord, the apostle says, and the table of demons. In other words, they were bringing two incompatible things together in their bodies. And this was the main problem. The profane desecrated by the holy. Now stepping back for a moment, we get a glimpse about what the supper really is. It's not only remembrance, but communion. Christ is truly present to us as we partake. Paul calls the bread and the cup spiritual food and spiritual drink. It's the high point of our union with him. As a mother with her baby in the womb, Christ nourishes us on his body and blood. His life sustains ours. And because we are in Christ and we share in him through communion, Paul is very concerned that we don't share in anything else. Our bodies are united to him. Again, it's not a matter of do this and don't do this. It's a matter of who we are and whose we are. We belong to Christ and share in him. So we must not give ourselves to anything incompatible with this. And remember Paul's question to those engaging with prostitutes at the temple. Shall I take them away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. And another place, dealing with the same problem, he says this, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 16. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? 
Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of the living God with idols? For we are the temple of God. So we are commanded not to take what belongs to Christ and to turn it over to someone else. We're not permitted to treat our bodies as our own because they're not our own. Christ is jealous over our bodies, not merely as a possession, but as his own body. And because our bodies are now a part of his body, they are holy. Our bodies have been cleansed and washed. So I'd like to end by inviting you to come and receive the elements of communion. But to remember that whatever we have done in our bodies, right now is the time to reconsecrate them to Christ. Christ gives himself to us, his body to us in the bread and the cup. And we give our bodies to him by partaking. We present ourselves, our bodies, as living sacrifices. So do that now. As Christ gives himself to you, as spiritual food and spiritual drink, give yourself to him as a worthy and acceptable sacrifice.